Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. From what I'm understanding, I'm, I'm following up uh, Owen Stubbs. Is that correct? Okay, pretty, pretty fitting. Uh, believe it or not, Owen actually discipled me when I was a college student at Sanford University a long time ago, about 17 years ago. And my wife and I were reflecting as we were driving over here. We don't live in Alabama. We live in Georgia, a little school called West Georgia. We had to drive east. So you guys know about it? Y'all know about it? Okay. And so we spent about an hour in the truck, and my wife went to Sanford as well. And we, we were actually laughing uh, because if there was a leaders retreat uh, for, I'm assuming most of you are probably sophomores, juniors, seniors, any super seniors, you don't have to raise your hand, uh, in, in the mix. Uh, but we were laughing because my wife Leah would have definitely been invited to this. Uh, but my junior year of college, there is no chance that Olin would have said, hey man, we got a labor retreat, are you interested in coming? And here's the reason why. Because laborers are men and women who have committed themselves to making disciples, right? And, and before you can make disciples, you got to be a disciple of Jesus. And I wasn't a disciple of Jesus, okay? I was somebody who was living for myself. Now, I, I was like notorious at Sanford my first two years uh, for, for wiling out, being a rebel, rule breaker. And I got to my junior year, and a lot of my friends were seniors, and they're about to graduate. And there's something that happens at every school, uh, but especially Sanford. And you're like, it's time to clean my life up. Okay? I, I got to work on the resume. I got to join some organizations. I got to boost the GPA. Okay? And I got to go from like sleeping around to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Because once I leave Sanford with my degree, like, like the dating pool really, really gets small. So I was all about that. My junior year... I was living the right way. I was doing the right things, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And from the outside in, people would stop me. They're like, man, what, what's happening to you? What's going on? You know, you're not smoking. You're only drinking on the weekends. You're dating this good girl. You're joining organizations. And really what happened, I call it like an idol swap. Okay. And, and what became the center of my life, it was just success. I was driven. I was motivated. And I wanted to be successful. And everything changed. Okay. When I joined a Bible study, I joined a Bible study in a fraternity house. Okay. And it was actually a guy named Rob Shaw who helped start the ministry at UAB. There we go. Okay. Other than Jesus, Rob should get the biggest shout out tonight for sure. But it was the first time in my life that I actually sat down, studied, discussed, had conversations about Jesus. And what started to happen, I don't have a Paul conversion. You know, we're in just one moment. One decision, my life was changed. It was more of a Peter conversion. Okay, we're slowly but surely over time. My, my junior year started this way. I'm living for myself. I'm living for Ben. But by the end of the semester, I'm saying things like this to Robin Olin. Hey, I want to go to that conference. And can you teach me how to read my Bible? And I really don't know how to pray. Can you show me how to do that? And you know what I've realized? There's other guys in my pledge class who don't know Jesus. Can we sit down across the table from them? And share our testimonies. And so God did a radical work in my life, my junior year at Sanford, okay? But, but I still wasn't a laborer until I moved into my senior year, okay? Um, and so what, one of the things, and, and this was a pretty significant moment just as I was reflecting, uh, my junior year, we have Jan term at Sanford, and a lot of people go on trips, okay? And I did the, the Jan term trip to Europe. Has anybody taken that trip yet? Okay, it's pretty exciting. Basically, you get a whole month in Europe. And I remember going 
uh, with, with a student or with a couple guys, and some of them were very serious about their faith. They would have been invited into this room. They were mature. Uh, they were sincere. They were devoted to follow Jesus. And at one point, we were in Ireland, and we were going on this hike. Okay, So we're hiking through this like tall green grass. It's picturesque. It's beautiful. And a guy in our group actually slips and rolls his ankle. Okay, And I, and I tend to be more of like an old school guy. I'm like, get up. You know, rub some dirt on it. Maybe some ice in Advil. Let's get stepping. Okay? But the one mature Christian in my group actually pulls this guy aside and says, Hey, man, uh, before we start hiking again, you're going to have to tough it out, but can we pray for you? Okay? And this is brand new Christian Ben. Okay? New believer Ben. And I remember thinking to myself, why in the world are we stopping to pray for this guy? Th- this isn't a spiritual need. This is a physical need. And, you know, I read my Bible this morning and already had my prayer time. Why are we pausing to pray even more? This seems weak. This seems like a distraction. We're on vacation. Why in the world would prayer be part of this guy's regular life? It's just not that big of a deal. And do you see what that revealed? Okay. I had a very American, young Christian perspective on prayer. And here's functionally how I operated that, that prayer was just something you compartmentalize in your life. You do it after you close your Bible. You do it before you eat a meal. You do it, you know, before you go to bed. Maybe hands class, you know, prayer emoji. But you see what I'm saying? It's segmented. It's compartmentalized. It's a couple minutes just on the periphery of your life. And here's the amazing thing, okay? 20 years later, by the grace of God... Prayer has moved to something I just do in isolated, you know, before meals, before bedtime. It's now become the very, like, center of my life, okay? I would say I try to the best of my ability, okay, to lead a prayerful life because what I believe, this is God's will not only for my life but your life as well. So what I want to invite you into this evening, okay, is a view, a way of life where prayer becomes like spiritual breathing, Okay? And let me just say this, okay? it's going to take me more than 30 minutes to get there. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. So think about it this way. 20 years later now, I work for Campus Outreach, which means a lot of college students ask me questions. Okay, so right now I'm meeting with a lot of freshmen. I spend time with football players and baseball players. So they call me Coach. They call me Webb. They call me Mr. Ben. You know, like I got a lot of influence over there. Just kidding. Uh, but a lot of times, this is the question that a lot of freshmen ask me. They say, Ben, how can I be saved? How can I know? How can I have assurance that I'm going to be with God in heaven? Okay, it's a pretty good question for a freshman. Had that a few times already this fall. A lot of sophomores, juniors, you want to know what their number one question is? Okay, okay. on most state schools, they ask this question, how far is too far in relationships? Okay, what does the Bible say about sex? Uh, you know, if you go to Sanford, it's, is he the one? Is she the one, right? It's more an idol of romance. But then you, when you get to senior year, and this is probably a lot of you, junior, seniors, the number one question that most people ask, you may want to guess, okay? I'm about to graduate. Ben, I just need to know what? What do I do with my life? What is God's will for my life? Well, there's a uh, missionary. He was actually a martyr, a man named Jim Elliott, and he says this. He says this. You don't need a voice when you got a verse, You understand what he's saying? He's saying this. So often when it comes to discovering, discerning God's will, we want the voice, the supernatural extreme moment where God just speaks to me. 
It tells me exactly where I'm going to live, what job to take, who I should date. But I think Jim Elliot is right. He says, we don't need a voice because we have a verse. Let's go to the, let's go to the next slide. My slide man, okay? Well, if we're studying Scripture, this seems like a really helpful verse, okay? Because it reveals right here in 1 Thessalonians 5, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, this is the second half of the verse. This is how the verse ends. Everybody's on the edge of their seat. They're wondering, what in the world could God's will for my life be? Well, let's look at the very beginning of the verse. It says this, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for your life. This is God's will for my life. And so here's what we see, is that according to this verse, prayer is not primarily this, getting God to do things for me. God, I need this. I want this. Will you do this? Will you remove this? Prayer, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, is going through life in relationship with God. Praying without ceasing. Non-stop, consistent, unceasing prayer. According to this passage, prayer is simply a, a whole life orientation towards God. It's an awareness. It's a connection. And it's called different things all throughout Scripture. Sometimes Paul refers this to walking in the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ in John 15 says, this is abiding in the Spirit. But it's the same idea, and the idea is this. Each and every day you have 86,000 seconds. And when we pray without ceasing, we live as many of those seconds in the very presence of God. And so here's what starts to happen when you develop this habit. You've all seen a compass before. A compass is always set to point towards north. It always returns to north. And as you start to pray without ceasing, God becomes the true north of your soul. You're unsettled. You're distracted. You're upset. There's adversity. Your heart returns in orientation towards God. And there's a reason why we should all pursue this. Okay? Because when we lead a Spirit-filled life, does anybody know what, what, what the fruit of the Spirit lead off with? Love, then what? Then joy, and then peace. How many of you would say, I want my life to be marked by love, joy, and peace? Isn't that what you want deep down? The psalmist, he says this, in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. That's what the purpose of prayer is. That God would be our joy day in and day out. Think about Jesus when he even instructs us how to pray because we're serious about his kingdom in our hearts, on our campus, and in our world. Ensure we labor to bring his kingdom to bear. We make disciples who join the kingdom. But first and foremost, we what? We pray, thy kingdom come. So how do we get there? How do we get there? Have you ever thought about this? Like modern society is completely antithetical to praying without ceasing. Brothers and sisters, it is harder than ever to pray without ceasing. So first off, if we're going to pray without ceasing, we've got to slow down. We've got to slow down. Most of you are going through life, late for class, stuck in traffic, hustling across campus, you're too fast to truly abide in Jesus Christ. 
Corey Tim Boone, she's a famous Holocaust survivor. She said this, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. There we go, Corey. <laughs> so this is the greatest danger for campus outreach student leaders. This is the greatest danger for ministry leaders. It's not that they would renounce our faith or become apostates. And despite what Fox News says and your Twitter feed says, and your grandparents say, it's not liberalism or wokeness or critical theory or secularism. The real danger okay, for college students is that we just get so distracted. We become so rushed so preoccupied that we start to settle with a mediocre version of the abundant life. Because so many of us are unable to focus. Even in conversations, we give people partial attention as we peek over our phone and try to engage. We're constantly multitasking. And do you see that all of these things prevent meaningful connection to God? Now listen to me. This is the air we breathe as Americans. This is the air we breathe as achievers, college students, movers and shakers, okay? So let me ask you this. In America, we tend to greet each other with this question, how you doing, okay? And usually we give the standard what? I'm, I'm good or I'm busy. Do you see that? We wear it almost like a badge of honor. All the organizations, all the extracurriculars, all the intramurals, look at how busy I am. And so some of you are very distracted, it's emails and text messages and appointments and assignments, and meetings and, 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 and clubs. And others of you, you're just distracted by Netflix and Instagram and just chilling. And instead of your life being devoted to the essentials, you're consumed with just trivial little things. And so, so often, this is how, um, this is how believers tend to view life. Is it right or is it wrong? We tend to have this moral perspective on life. Is it obedient or disobedient? Am I breaking a rule or am I keeping the rules? And I would just say this. That might not be the best question. As you examine your schedule and how you spend your time and what you devote your life to, a better question might be, that, might be before I open this app or watch this show or join this club, is this going to open me or block me to the presence of the Holy Spirit? It's a better question. Is this going to help me know God or hinder my relationship with God? I don't know what everybody's thinking right now. They're like, well, Ben, I am busy because it's the fall. And you're about to give me one more thing to do. Praying without ceasing. How in the world can I fit it into my schedule? And I'm saying exactly. Exactly. See, for some of you, instead of saying, here's one more thing to do, maybe the application for this talk is there's one less thing I need to do. I need to remove something, go back on a commitment. I need to stop doing this so I can focus on what's best for my life. See, the whole point of this message is not to do more. It's actually to do less. Do less, but do more of what matters most. And what matters more than just staying in the continuous presence of God? So some of us just need to slow down. Let's go to the next slide. Some of us need to schedule it. Schedule it. What do you arrange your day around right now? Is it school? I understand how school works. You know, you got to show up to class. Is it your social life? Is it a relationship? Is it a hobby? What if you were to arrange your days 
around the very presence of God. Do you know this is what the early church did? The early church would gather together three times a day to pray. At 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. Okay, you read the Psalms once again. I'll just mention one. This is Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's a meditation on praying and reading Scripture. And here's what the psalmist says. He says this. Ask yourself, how often did the psalmist pray? Well, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. That's the evening. And then he says, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. This is why if you've ever studied like the monks or the monastics, do you know how many times a day they prayed? Anybody want to guess? Seven times, okay? Now, is he saying literally you have to pray seven times a day? Not exactly, okay? Because if you actually study scripture, seven, now you guys are like quality leaders, you guys can handle a little numerology, right? Okay? So anytime you find, not anytime, but oftentimes you find, that, find the number seven, it's a number of completion. It's a number of wholeness. We have seven what? Days in a week. And it's a whole week. An entire week. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? Morning to evening. All day. The entire day. I'm prayerful. The early church did it. The psalmist did it. What about Jesus? Anybody want to answer that question? How many times a day did Jesus pray? That's a tough one, isn't it? Okay, we don't know. We don't know, but we do know this. He prayed a lot. I'm just going to go with Luke, one of his disciples. He says this, Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place. There'd be certain times where like Jesus would go missing. Okay, I've got a little boy. He's running around here. He's four. Our little boy always goes missing. But it's, it's really easy to find him because his best friend is his neighbor. So if Jake goes missing... We're like, he's at the Bennett's because he loves the Bennett's. It's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus would disappear. And his disciples, his homies were like, where is he? Is he playing Xbox? Is he at the tavern? You know, is he working on his fantasy draft? No, this is Jesus. He's in the wilderness and he's praying because he loves to come into the presence of the Father. I know some of you are probably thinking right now, well, Ben, scheduling prayer, that, that seems like inauthentic. It seems unspiritual. That prayer should, prayer should be spontaneous and emotional. And I would just say this. Most things in life, especially when you're an adult, come down to a schedule. And most of your life should not be authentic. Okay? So here's what you need to think about. Okay? In most things in life, there's like a dichotomy. Okay? Like think about God. Dichotomy are two things that seem to be in opposition. Well, God is holy. He's just. He's righteous but he's also loving and gracious and merciful. You all agree with that? Okay. A lot of you work jobs. You'll definitely get a job after you graduate. Like when you have a boss, do you want him to be organized or do you want him to be kind? What do you want? I want both. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Dichotomies. Well, there's also a dichotomy in our prayer life. Okay. And that dichotomy is this. What we're talking about this evening is what we call earnest prayer. This actually comes from Matthew 9, where Jesus says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. And here's the dichotomy in this word earnest. An earnest prayer, let's go to the next slide, here we go, is a prayer that is marked by passion, but also persistence. That's the dichotomy. So think about it this way. Earnest prayer requires discipline. 
That infers that earnest prayer is not easy. It doesn't come naturally. I mean, when's the last night you were just like chilling on your sofa? You're like, I'm done with homework. I'm done with my responsibilities. I've got two hours just for me. And you know what, Ben? I just found myself interceding for the next two hours. Ever happened to you? Because prayer, intercession or just prayer. Prayer is not our default. We, we don't naturally end up there. It requires discipline. Things like reading books and not skipping leg day and eating vegetables. Those require discipline and so does prayer. But oftentimes when these things become disciplined habits, they become routine, they become rote, and we lose our passion for it. Okay? Hopefully everybody brushes their teeth every day. Y'all with that? Hopefully more than once a day. Okay? And what's the temptation just when you start brushing your teeth? Is you just go through the motions. Oftentimes, our daily habits, we just go through the motions. That's the danger with reading our Bible. It's the danger of prayer. Okay? So do you see what this word is combining? It's saying when we do it, it's got to be regular. It's got to be daily. It needs to be consistent. But we're not going through the motions. It's engaging our heart. We're bringing our passion and our affections towards God. Here's one more dichotomy. One of the things that Jesus tells us about prayer is that we should pray in secret. Remember before the Lord's Prayer? He says, go into your room, close your door, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now here's what's really interesting. If you lived in the ancient Near East, you didn't have your own room. You shared a house, a one-room house, with mom and dad and brother and sister and maybe a couple animals. And so Jesus isn't saying, like, literally get a prayer closet. He's not saying devote one room in the sorority house to prayer but he's saying, create time each and every day for an undistracted experience with God. And this, really this, is the true test of our spirituality. So you need to find some place in your home, on your campus, in your schedule, where just like Jesus, this is my wilderness. It's distraction-free. It's a deserted place where I can focus on the face of God. But we should also pray with other people. You ever thought about that? Because how does the Lord, Lord's Prayer begin? It's not my Father. Pay attention to the pronouns. It's what? It's our Father. You see that? What Jesus is suggesting is that when you lock arms or come together in prayer with my brothers and sisters, your prayers are powerful and effective. Okay? And I'll just tell you as a dad, okay? I'll give you one great example, okay? The reason why my kids are here is because Shaco Springs has a putt-putt golf course, okay? I live in a small town called Carrollton, Georgia, and we don't have putt-putt golf in our entire town, okay? And my little boy loves to play putt-putt golf, okay? It's just his favorite. I don't know why, okay? And so he will come to me and he'll say, Daddy, I want to play putt-putt golf. And when it's just him, I'll brush it aside. Well, Jake, you don't understand. The closest putt-putt golf is 45 minutes away, and it's just not worth it, okay? But, Daddy, I want to play putt-putt golf. Jake, not today. But Jake is slick. He's thoughtful. He's smart. You know what he's figured out? Okay, The power of our Father. The power of praying in communion. The power of enlisting his sister to say, Our Father, can we go putt-putt golfing together? You see what I'm saying? He gets his sister to come with him. And guys, it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. And so this might be the application that everybody makes. Okay? Is that I get my one roommate, my one fraternity brother, my teammate, my best friend, 
my accountability partner, and we don't just confess sin together, we don't just read together, but we have a time on our calendar every day or every week where we cry out our Father. We pray together. Guys, I promise you, okay, if you take one thing from this talk, one thing that can change Troy, UAB, and Samford, it's mobilizing you leaders just to pray together. I know what most of you guys are thinking. Well, Ben, you just don't know how busy I am. I'm an SGA, and I'm an intramural all-star, and I got to work 20 hours a week. And I would just say this. Oftentimes, when life gets busy, what's the first thing to go? It's usually our prayer life, isn't it? But here's what the Proverbs say. When you lead a life in the presence of God, the Proverbs say the Lord will actually lengthen our days. And I would just say, just try it. What does that mean? Do I get 25 hours in a day? But it just means this. When I make God the priority in my life, in my schedule, I find I'm able to get more done. Take God at his word. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to say this. I have so much to do that I'm going to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Make prayer the highest value on your schedule. Build your life around hearing his voice by reading his word, having God's ear by praying to him, and belonging to the body of Christ. If you arrange your day that way, you experience deep and abiding joy. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, I told you I can't do this in 30 minutes. We're going to look at a real-life example of someone who built his life around praying without ceasing. This man's name is Daniel. Okay, let's go to Daniel 6. Do we have the verse? Fantastic. Okay, let me tell you about Daniel. Daniel's a politician. Is anybody like totally jaded with the government? And you're like, man, there's nobody who prays in D.C. Okay, a lot of you. A lot, lot, of, lot of skepticism towards politics right now. Well, Daniel worked for a pagan king. He loved God and he prayed without ceasing. And Daniel was in exile. And here's what this means. He was actually ripped from his Israelite home and he was brought... Okay, into Persia. And, and the king at this time was a guy named Cyrus. This is old Daniel. He's probably 70, 80, even 90 years old. And Nehemiah, if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Daniel stays in Persia to pray. Daniel is actually promoted to become the prime minister. He's the second most powerful man in the entire land. And he's incorruptible. He, he's diligent. He's exceptional. He's everything that our politicians today are not. So let's read really quickly. Okay, well, let let me just say this. Um, Daniel gets a promotion. And let me just say this. Anytime God lifts you up, there will be others who try to bring you down. And that's exactly what happens to Daniel. And have you ever noticed this? When somebody runs for office, like I live in Georgia, there's these awful attack ads. You know, every time there's an election cycle, okay, they call it mudslinging. And the Republicans throw mud at the Democrats, and the Democrats throw mud at the Republicans. And it's like, it's Trump versus Biden. It's Trump versus everybody. You know, it's Biden versus Clinton. But you see what I'm saying? It's digging up dirt to try to remove credibility from my opponent. And so David, or excuse me, Daniel has enemies, and they try to uh, discredit him. And it's really interesting. The only weakness that they can find in 70 years, that's seven decades of public service, The only weakness that they can find is that Daniel was devoted to prayer. That Daniel prayed without ceasing. And so they hatch a plan. 
And here's the plan, okay? These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, King Darius, live forever. They're just kissing his butt right here. They said, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, they're agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Okay. Who's getting some Sunday school vibes right now? This is Daniel in the lines then. You're thinking back to that felt board, right? <laughs> so, can, can we get a little participation right here? I know we've got some Bible scholars in the room, okay? This injunction, what did it forbid people to do? What could they not do? They what? Couldn't pray? Okay, let's try to be more specific. Okay, they couldn't pray to anybody else. Okay, anything else? Now, how would they know who's praying and who who is praying and who's not praying? Okay, they couldn't pray together. Okay, so what? Okay, they yeah. Daniel sort of opens his door. We'll see that in just a little bit. Here's what's really interesting. Okay, guys, pay attention to this. Okay, look what Cyrus commands. He, does he command people to worship him? Not necessarily. Okay? The only thing that he forbids, it's not just prayer, it's audible prayer. Out loud prayer. And is it a permanent ban? Is it for the rest of your life? Is it for a year? Is it for a semester? It's for 30 days. So here's what Cyrus says. You can't pray out loud to any other God for 30 days. That's the rule. And let me ask you this. What if that rule was enacted on your campus? How would you respond? What would you do if the administration at your university forbid audible prayer meetings? How do you think Micah would respond or Joey would respond? I know what I would probably do. I'd probably type out a little email. and I would say, hey, CO leaders, let's keep on laboring, but let's be discreet. So if you pray, go on a prayer walk, maybe pray silently. Hey, let's just lay low. It's just 30 days, right? Let's just lay low. But do you see what's going on here? What put Daniel in the lion's den? What put Daniel in the lion's den? He refused to violate 1 Thessalonians 5. Daniel said, I will not cease praying. Daniel's life hangs hangs in the balance. He could lose his life for this, but on top of that... He's number two in the entire empire. He's about to have influence. He's about to have clout. Think of all the good he could do to reshape the kingdom, to worship God. And the only thing he has to do is what? Just pray silently. Or just pray by himself. Or just stop praying for 30 days. Or just close your windows, Daniel. Or just go on a prayer walk. Let's see how Daniel responds. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees and three times a day he prayed out loud and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition 
and plead before his God. Daniel was willing to die because of his commitment to continuous prayer. So here's the question. Would a one-month prayer ban make a difference in your campus movement? Would a one-month prayer ban make a difference in your life? You might be sitting there and feeling yourself, well, Ben, this just seems like too much. And this seems a little legalistic and pharisaical. Well, how do you think Daniel would respond to that? He would say, this is how I get my joy. This is how I experience the face of God. I get to pause before God three times a day. And I'm willing to die for this because it's the only way that I can stay faithful to God while I'm exiled in a pagan land. I don't have to pray. I must pray. I think that's how Daniel would respond. Daniel understood that he was in exile. Daniel understood that continuous prayer is the way to experience the face of God. Did you know this? That we're in exile as well? When you read your Bible from cover to cover, the most dominant position of the nation of Israel and the church is on the margins of power. Exiles. Sojourners. Travelers. Do you know that over the past 25 years, I can't imagine anybody's 25 in the room, during your lifetime, did you know this? In the United States, 40 million people have left the church and are not returning. Well, Ben, that seems like a lot. That's 12% of our nation's population. Just to put in perspective, this is the most significant religious shift in our nation's history. Anybody taking like American history or religious history? If you were to take the conversions from the first Great Awakening, the second Great, Great Awakening, in every Billy Graham crusade, okay, more people have left the church in the past 20 years than joined the church than those three things. And so here's what this means for you, and you probably experience this to some degree. Okay, for the first time in the past 100 years, okay, church attenders are no longer the majority They're actually the minority. We're exiles. But also the feel, okay? Our culture's feel towards the church has changed as well. Our culture used to be favorable, okay? Then it was tolerant. And now we're moving into a phase of hostility towards the church. So could it be that just like Daniel, if we're not praying without ceasing, we don't stand a chance in exile? And if it was true for Daniel, how much more is it true for me? That if we don't ground our life in real prayer, consistent prayer, we're not going to make it. So let me just point out a couple things about Daniel's prayer life and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. First off, it's regular. It's regular. Okay. And we've been hammering this home right here. But here's the big point. Okay. You can't start your prayer life in a crisis. You really can't build any habit in a crisis. And here's what's amazing. Do you know when when Daniel learned how to pray without ceasing? When he was a teenager. When he was your age. When he still lived in Israel because this was the temple worship schedule. Can I just say this? This is why I do what I do. This is why Campus Outreach exists. Because we believe that when we sit across the table from a young college student, we are establishing them and we're helping them build habits and disciplines that they will carry with them for the rest of their life. Daniel learned how to pray as a college student. 
I learned ACTS prayer as a college student. And you want to know what? I do it every day because of the investment that a campus outreach staff made in me. You're developing habits that you'll carry with you for a lifetime. Second, it's varied. I don't know if you saw that, but there's praise, there's adoration, there's thanks, there's petition. Okay, this is why the ACTS prayer is really good. Third, and I'd encourage you maybe tomorrow morning, go back and read all of Daniel 6. Okay, this is like a Hall of Fame story, Daniel in the lion's den. But here's what you'll see in the midst of all this, when Daniel's life is on the line, he's totally at peace. He's not anxious. And when you read the rest of the story, every other major character is full of, excuse me, is full of stress and anxiety. And once again, I mean, how, how many of you would say, Ben, I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm worried. I desire to be non-anxious. Here's what's really interesting. We think inner peace comes from like moving up the ranks. If I can just get to the top of my fraternity... If I can get the top GPA, if I can get the top MCAT score, if I can get the top internship, then what? I will receive inner peace. I'll be non-anxious. And then we meet Cyrus. And he has all the power. He's the top dog. And when you read the story, he can't even sleep. He's full of anxiety. We also tend to think that we can become non-anxious through just stuff. If I can just own this or have this or buy this, or wear this, or drive this, then I'll be at peace. And where is Cyrus living? He's living in the palace. And he's full of stress. And then we meet Daniel in the very bottom of a lion's den. He's perfectly at peace. Completely non-anxious. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. What we learn from this story is that true peace does not come from living in a palace or having power. It only comes from a life devoted to prayer. This is Philippians 4, 6-7 in action. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through what? Prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. Daniel 6 is living this out. Number 4. Okay, Daniel's on his knees. Do you see his posture? I guess you can't see his posture. Did you read his posture? And, and, and this is physical, but it's also the posture of his heart. Do you, do you know what Daniel is doing? He's saying, I'm humble. Now think about his position. What's his job? Does anybody remember? He's the, he's number two. He's the prime minister. So just imagine there's servants and magistrates and officials coming before him. And when they address prime minister Daniel, what do you think they do? They bow before him. And do you see what Daniel is saying? He's saying, you're the true king. I'm not a big deal. You're the hero. You're the ruler, God. But he's also expectant. Because in the ancient Near East, where you, when you bowed, you would actually open your hands as well. And so what he's saying, he's not only abandoning his pride, but he's saying, God, I know you're going to answer. I know you're the good father. You give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You do anything in my name. He's expecting God. And number five, he's facing the temple. He's facing the temple. Now, Daniel could not see the temple but he knew the exact direction that the temple was in. And do you see what he's doing when he's praying? He's praying over his empire. He's praying for his people. He's praying for his city. 
And so when you start linking up with your friends and your community and these fellow laborers, what do you need to pray for? Pray for your campus. Pray for your dorm. Pray for your family. Pray for people who don't know Jesus. Pray for your classmates and pray for them by name. And do you see, this isn't some like self-centered attempt at inner peace. This is missional prayer. This is laboring prayer. And he's facing Jerusalem. Because what's Jerusalem? It's the symbol of God's kingdom. In the very middle of Jerusalem, there was one conspicuous building. The most famous building in all of Jerusalem was what? It was the temple. And the temple represented the very presence of God. It was his dwelling place. And there was this room in the very center that was called the Holy of Holies. And in it was the place of atonement. The Ark of the Covenant was there where blood was spilled in order to come into the presence of God. And Daniel says, I open my windows and I face the temple. Do you see what he's facing towards? He's facing towards sacrifice. He's acknowledging atonement. And so what does that mean for you and me? When we pray, we pray in whose name? We pray in the very name of Jesus. That's how we open the doors, not of our building, of our heart, and we pray in the name of Jesus. And look, when I was this young, immature, not quite leader, I thought in Jesus' name was just a tack on. It's like saying goodbye. It's like saying goodnight. It's just how you end your prayer. But here's what I've come to learn. You know what it means to pray in Jesus' name? First, it means you pray prayers that please Him, that are according to His desires, that are in line with His character, that please Him. So you better believe if you're praying, Jesus, take this sin away. He's going to answer that prayer. Maybe not in your timing. Jesus changed this fraternity. Jesus saved my friend. Those are all things that are in his name. But the second thing is this. If I'm praying in Jesus' name, whose name am I not praying in? I ain't praying in my name. It's not Campus Outreach's name. I'm saying the only access I have to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Do you see this? Earnest prayer is just living out the gospel. Because Jesus is the true temple. And Jesus is the place where atonement is made. So brothers and sisters, you can do this. You can be men and women devoted to earnest prayer. This very week, I I meet with three redneck baseball players, okay? Nick, Mike, and Ronnie, okay? I mean, does Ronnie sound like a saint? You ever met Saint Ronnie? Okay, it ain't ever going to happen. But here's the thing. We were having our accountability group. And one guy said, I'm really, I, 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 I haven't quite put pornography to death. I'm fighting it. I'm battling it. And two, another guy shared, man, I really struggle with anxiety. Another guy, you know, as we're sharing with the accountability, he said, you know, we're leading this Bible study and all our teammates are coming. But there's a couple guys, man, I just really want to know Jesus. And we were reading about Jesus. One of the guys said, you know what? We got to pray more. We got to pray more. Because we read this story where Jesus said to his disciples as they encountered real darkness in a son who needed healing. Jesus says this this can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. And the point is this, okay? If you want to remove sin from your own life, if you want to push back on evil on your campus, you've got to be devoted to prayer and to fasting. And what fasting is, okay? And look, guys, if redneck baseball players at West Georgia can do it, you can do it. 
Now, I had to correct a few like misconceptions. Ronnie, of course it was Ronnie. He was like, well, I fast every day because I always skip breakfast and sleep till 11. I was like, Ronnie, that ain't fasting, okay? <laughs> fasting is when you renounce physical food, okay? And you satisfy the hunger of your soul with the presence of the Spirit. But you're crying out, you're depending, you're relying on the Spirit. And so what these guys are doing on a weekly basis is they are fasting for lunch. And they're praying, God, remove sin from me. Push back evil on our team. God, help us dwell into your presence. This is what it looks like to be devoted to earnest prayer. So here's what we got to understand. Guys, Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor, says this. He says, prayerless Christianity is Christless Christianity. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that prayerlessness is a sin? Have you ever confessed it? Have you ever repented of it? It's missing the mark. It's less than God intends. But more than missing the mark, here's what I want you to see. It's missing an opportunity. God is saying, I want more of you. I want more of you. This is the coach who says, I just don't want to scream at you in practice. Come into my home. Get to know me. This is my spouse who who says, Ben, I I just don't want an every other week date night. Can we connect? Can we talk? Can we converse every day? I want more of you because I love you. This is God's invitation. This is God's will for your life. See, we tend to think that God's will for life is just the major decisions. What job am I going to take? What city am I going to live in? Who's going to be my spouse? Now listen to me. The most important decisions you make are not the big major ones. A majority of what we call life are the thousands or millions of boring, ordinary choices. Who are my best friends going to be? How am I going to relate to my phone or to my body? How am I going to use my free time? Let me just say this, praying without ceasing, unending prayer, it's hard work. It's tiring. And so often we're quick to give up. But 99% of our life are these mundane daily repeated disciplines. And over time, just like Daniel, they accumulate and they make a life that is well lived. So this is my calling and this is what I'm going to tie it in tomorrow. Okay, There's an old Scottish pastor named Andrew Murray. He says this, the pastor who mobilizes the church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism. What I'm imploring you to do okay, is to pray. And tomorrow what we're going to see is how this life of continuous, unceasing prayer connects to the work that God is doing in the world.